we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Life isn't fair, justice is blind and dysfunctional, and some cops aren't smart and dedicated, like on television. This is Who Killed Teresa. I'm your host, John Allure. Um, uh, it's the holidays, and uh, uh, for me, the holidays is about, um, I don't know, uh, doing jigsaw puzzles and um, obsessively uh, getting focused on some project. Uh, and uh, this holiday, it, it, I, it's been, it's been the, not only the Netflix Yorkshire Ripper uh, documentary, but the Yorkshire Ripper case, which has always been sort of in the background, sometimes in the forefront of my memory, um, always seems to bubble up at some point. Uh, it's been that and, frankly, the, the Great British Baking Show, which I've also always sort of been like aware of. It's I'm always aware of it, but I never actually... Uh, binged it <laughs> so I've been uh, and, and really kind of diving into who was Mary is Mary Berry and Paul Hollywood is that his name uh, Paul it sounds too good to be true that it's Paul Hollywood I guess it is. <laughs> but it really kind of knuckling down uh, with these characters and uh, so that's that's been my um, uh, finish for 2020 or those things and um you know, with, uh, and if you don't know, um, <clears throat> this podcast uh, focuses on Quebec uh, unsolved murders uh, in the province of Quebec in Canada, and particularly from an era uh, in the late 70s, although we do very often stray 
uh, into the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Uh, but my corridor is 75 to about 80, 81, uh, that epic. Um, with a genesis with the, with the unsolved murder of my sister, Teresa Lohr, who, uh, who, who died in 1978. So that, that's the epicenter. And everything kind of spills out from that. Um, it it always is helpful to, I th I think, um, look at a problem that is similar from a distance, and that's what I've always kind of found attractive about the Yorkshire Ripper case, is there's a lot of similarities with a series of unsolved murders in Quebec, um, it, it, a similar uh, time period. Uh, 75 to 80, that corridor, uh, a similar type of offender, uh, someone roving uh, in a vehicle, preying on women, uh, somebody who's, uh, who, who has an established uh, uh, mode of offense, but is, is able to improvise uh, the use of uh, a signature weapon in, in the murders, and yet again, able to improvise with with weapons and, and, and use, uh, and enab able to, uh, turn everyday, uh, tools into weapons, such as a screwdriver. That is something that's very similar, uh, tabloid journalism, which at the same time, uh, is a tool of, um, s uh, sort of, uh, I, I don't know, of morality, uh, and, uh, and yet confused morals uh, of sexual exploitation, that, that is certainly very similar. Geography, interesting geographic patterns, these are all things that are very similar. And, and just that era, uh, an era that in both countries, in, in Canada and the UK, was under a great deal of economic pressure. You had the energy crisis, uh, these things, um, and finally, um, police incompetence and criminal investigative failures would be the big things for me that have always uh, attracted me uh, to the case of uh, Peter Sutcliffe. You know, there are many things in about the, the Ripper series that interest me, uh, but a sideline um, has been um, the focus on the, um, the re the, the Reclaim the Night uh, marches that occurred in Leeds in uh, November of 1977 as part of the Leeds Revolutionary Feminist Group. Um, uh, there was a parallel with that too. I've kept a file um, for a number of years because I was going to do a series on women's marches, the history of them against sexual violence. Uh, and this is as good a place to kind of start that conversation as, as any. Uh, so I went back and kind of looked at my file and found it kind of interesting that, uh, you know, women in Leeds at this point, you know, 77, so uh, the Yorkshire Ripper is, um, you know, still not caught. He's not caught until January 1981, I believe. So there's still a long way to go and women are getting frustrated and very, very angry and saying that, you know, the night is as much as theirs as any man's and it's not it's not women who are committing acts of rape and violence so why why is it that women are being asked to be locked up and saying they're not safe on the streets shouldn't it be the other way around a legitimate question um and these um 
you know, a lot of people think these marches started in San Francisco. They didn't. Uh, from what we can tell, the original marches started uh, in Philadelphia in 1975, Brussels 76, and they were to denounce sexual violence. Um, uh, it, the, the, the San Francisco marches from 79 were more about uh, protesting por pornography. We don't see them in Quebec in the Montreal era, era, area, excuse me, until about 19, um, I believe in, in the 80s, I think around 82. And those original marches, it's very interesting. Uh, they began at Laurier Park uh, in the East End of Montreal and extended, they marched to Parc La Fontaine. And the route they took uh, was right down uh, Brebeuf Street. Uh, they would have come down uh, Brebeuf and, and they, if they didn't, they at least, they conglomerated right at the foot of where Brebeuf meets La Fontaine Park, which is interesting because we've focused on two victims uh, in this podcast. Uh, one, Lison Blay, who was murdered in 1978. One, uh, Denise Bazinet, murdered uh, in the fall of 1977. Both lived on Brebeuf with their parents both uh, either disappeared or were murdered in that area, which um, uh, today is known as Le, the, the Plateau uh, area. Um, and these marches in, in, in Montreal, Quebec, continued um, all through the, uh, the 80s and, uh, and in the 90s. Uh, they took on special, uh, special significance in 1990, that was the 10th anniversary of them, so they would have started in 1980. And uh, just the, the prior winter in 1989, uh, Mark Lepin had been arrested for the assassination, the murder of 14 uh, women at Ecole Polytechnique, um, one of the, the worst uh, cases of, of male violence against women in, in, in Canadian history. Uh, 1989 also, 30 women had been killed by husbands or by boyfriends. Um, in that march on that 10th anniversary, 300 to 400 women uh, marched. Men were not invited to march until uh, the 1990s. Um, and then as, as the marches progressed, uh, 2015 march acknowledged the abuses against uh, Aboriginal women, particularly in the community of Val d'Or, Quebec, uh, where there has been long been a problem that was not ex exposed until 2015, but it, it, it certainly had been, been a lingering problem of not only domestic abuses, but abuses by police officers against Aboriginal women. Um, and then in 2016, um, um, these these marches, which were originally uh, monikered uh, "Take Back the Night," are, are are now have evolved to be called "The Night Is Not Enough," and begin to include um, uh, sex uh, sex trade workers uh, um, and the whole definition of vulnerable women begins begins to change. Um, that's a brief history of. Uh, these marches uh, in in Quebec. I'll post some 
some content on my website about that, which is uh, www.theresalore.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E.com. So today we're going to continue the discussion uh, to close out the year about the Yorkshire Ripper case. And, you know, you might say, what, what does a Canuck living in the United States really have to contribute to such a notorious UK case. Um, well, I'm lucky. Uh, I brought weapons um, and um, I have an expert in my, uh, in my, my quiver today who is uh, Chantelle from the podcast Lady Justice is going to join me for a conversation. This is kind of my Annie Hall Marshall McLuhan moment. Well, I just happen to have somebody from the UK here. So we're going to, we're going to sit down and, and talk about the case. So for, for, and this is a crossover episode. Uh, we'll spend about 25 minutes here talking with Chantel and then over on Chantel's podcast, Lady Justice, she will take the reins and take the lead and we will continue the conversation. If, if you're a regular, uh, listener, to Lady Justice, uh, welcome. Uh, there's no need to listen to these in any particular order. We just thought it would be kind of a fun thing um, to do. Um, it's great to have a podcast ally and someone that you really respect and respects you and that um, you you think think is going doing really good work and meaningful work. And that for me is Chantel. Um, and that's that's why we thought this would be a, a fun idea for for listeners in a crossover episode. Uh, technical note: the interviews were done over the course of two days. The first day uh, was this interview you'll hear now, in which we had experienced a, a number of technical difficulties, which you'll hear us kind of refer to. Uh, I actually think Chantel's interview is the better interview, which was done on the the, the following day. Um, but that's good. That's really good. It'll, it'll compel you to, you know, skedaddle on over there and, and listen to that. Um, it just the ideas flowed a little better as well. Do you have a dark spot on your So um, uh, we should do this. We should we should talk about the Yorkshire Ripper case because we have both watched the Netflix show, and we have both I I, I don't know I watched it again um, half of it this morning, and was really kind of um, fascinated with it. Um, so I guess initially, I'd like to know about your thoughts upon the second viewing about this Netflix series, The Ripper. I suppose when I watched it the second time, and I, I quite liked looking back at it and going, hold on, I missed that little bit. 
because there were some things especially about like the treatment of women and how they were described at the time which you know it's it's still a thing that happens here in the UK and I've come across it when I've done episodes involved that involving a female victim that the media like to pull the woman down so re-watching it and seeing how much that affected the case because the first time I watched it it was just more about the chase second time I watched it it was more about those little details really showed why it it fucked up the, the the investigation was you know something that didn't need to last as long as it did yeah yeah and and Joan Smith the uh I guess she was a a radio with a radio station at the time uh, in Manchester, her voice really kind of shone through with me a lot. Where, um, particularly the line where she said, um, um, "You know, people who focus on it as a story, as opposed to the, the actual people involved." Uh, my, mm-hmm. excuse me, my cat Pickle is climbing the walls, <laughs> which is fine. But, 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 yeah, yeah, I, I thought so too. That. Uh, that it was sort of for me the pursuit although you're you know if you're like me you're somewhat familiar with this case but um you know you always kind of fall into it again the chase as you say and uh, up until his apprehension you've broken up all right we've had time to regroup (laughs) (laughs) get our story straight about the Yorkshire Ripper. Um, we needed that extra three hours. <laughs> <laughs> More cramming on the case. <laughs> Thank God. Actually, I, I discovered something really, really interesting from a, uh, of course, Quebec perspective. And, you know, people are going to be like, why do we give a crap about what some Canuck thinks about the Ripper case? Well, I, I mean, I care. And for people who don't know, uh, we should say that I have a podcast that is sort of Canada Quebec focused called Who Killed Teresa, and you have a podcast called Lady Justice, which and you're in the UK. Mm-hmm. So we we uh, are... I focus solely on UK cases, right? And and here we are. It's it's a meeting of minds about the Netflix series called The Ripper, which is currently. I think available to American viewers, Canadian viewers, UK viewers. I'm not sure about Australia and New Zealand. I'm not too sure. Yeah. But but pretty much bridges our audiences, would you say? Yes? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. So now we're 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 going to we're going to answer all questions about it, of course. Of course, all those questions that we so no need answering. <laughs> why, why are you interested in this case? What draws it's one you? Of those case, it's one of those cases, though, because my family are from the Northeast, and um, it's just one of those cases that haunts the area. It haunts the whole of the UK because, you know, it shouldn't have taken as long as it did to catch him, and it changed the way that we view how safe this country is. It's very much like the Jamie Bolger case, whereas 
you know, we didn't think that children could be like that, even though we've had things like Mary Bell. But I think for the Sutcliffe case, it was really the start of us having serial killers here. Whilst like in American stuff, we, we kind of knew about it, but now the danger was on our shores. Right. And, um, you know, for, 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 for me, you know, I think Canadians still have a hard time acknowledging they have a problem with serial killers. It wasn't until much later that you began in, in Canada to talk about people like Clifford Olson or uh, Robert Picton, but those guys are far out west. And then a little later, uh, you know, we, um, you know, we learned of Carla Homoka and, uh, and Paul Bernardo, but that was in Ontario. Uh, Quebec still refuses to acknowledge that it has any problem with a with a serial killer, probably because there's only there's only been about three who have been caught or have admitted to such a thing. Um, but um, I mean, I find it interesting because what was going on with the Yorkshire Ripper, the timeline about uh, I, I mean, the, 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 when it's in the public consciousness, 1975 to 1980, 81, uh, when he's Peter Sutcliffe is active, is um, is fertile fertile ground for me because that's when I am grasping in who killed Teresa with a serial killer, potentially in the eastern townships of Quebec, uh, and a series of unsolved murders. But there's a lot of, for me, a lot of commonalities, particularly um, like um, uh, a recession that is going on. There's high unemployment and and, uh, and the suppression of women, the misogyny is is all very much there in, in the forefront in, in these Quebec cases, which is very similar to the Yorkshire Ripper cases. We had the winter of discontent in 79, and that plays very much into how we viewed all of this. We had the fact that, you know, an economic downturn put stresses on us anyway, and it did on the police force too, but we then became angry with everything as as the public, and it's shown in the media how we just wanted change. We wanted it all to be gone. We wanted the financial issues to go away, but we also wanted this killer to go away. And it fueled a lot of the, the anger, more so than it would have done if, you know, everything was great financially, because people were already feeling very emotional. What, what did it feel like, what does it still feel like to sort of be told by men um, as a woman, that you can't go out at night because you must be protected by presumably men who are stalking women. What? What? Because that plays very heavily in in the Ripper series on net, at Netflix, and I wondered your observations about that. It's one of those things where I think even today we would have that same reaction of how dare you we're not the problem you know but there's also especially of that time period there's a generational thing where they are slowly changing and they mention it in the documentary you know social values are changing so with that women started to find a bit more of a voice 
I know that even up where, because I live in between where Suckcliffe, you know, committed these crimes and where um, Wearside Jack comes from. And one of the victims was from Cleveland as well. And the area, I, I remember speaking to my mum and she was in her, the, the start of her teens when this happened. And she remembers going out and being really, really angry that um, this was happening and they were being told that you had to stay inside. And if I was told, I would probably do it, but I'd still be really angry at the fact that I would have to protect myself by hiding. Right. What can, just to, because I don't think the, the name Wearside Jack is ever mentioned in the four-part series. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that um, for listeners who may not know what that, the whole Geordi angle, um, Sunderland. So that's actually something false in the documentary. A Geordi accent is from Newcastle. Um, Sunderland is about 10 miles south ah. and they're called Mackhams. So um, <laughs> the accent thing was something that really got me, but I suppose that's just because people don't really know all of the accents. But um he sent not only letters, but the video, uh, the voice recording, which derailed the entire investigation for 18 months. You know, three other women were killed because the police thoroughly believed that the voice state that he had sent was from the Yorkshire Ripper and that he wasn't someone from the area, but obviously from Sunderland. Right. And, and, and again, you get this male expert, right? I can't remember the guy's name, but he's the guy with that chin beard, chin beard linguist mm -hmm. guy who says, I can, I can pin the accent on this, this tape within a square mile of like Castleton or Castletown or something like that. And, um, and so they spend all this time and energy and ignore anyone with the Yorkshire accent. And as you say, three other women die. And in the end, it's this guy, John Samuel Humble, who's perpetrating a hoax, right? And he, did, didn't he eventually serve time for the hoax? Yeah, he was found out through DNA on one of the um, seals on the envelopes um, that they found in London. It was back in 2005. He was sentenced to four counts of reversing um, the course of justice and... He was due to spend, I think, eight years in prison, but um, he only spent four. He ended up um, passing away last year. He he passed away because Sutcliffe passed away last year as well, right? He died of COVID. Uh, Sutcliffe, so uh, Sutcliffe passed away this year. Right. Humble died last year. Okay, two thousand. He was an alcoholic after because he even tried ringing the police. He rang Northumberland police. Um, on two occasions and said this is a hoax um and nobody listened to him so, and so he was riddled with so he was calling in his own hoax and the police still wouldn't listen to him yeah which is insane i think the first yeah. time he called was 11 days after the first um victim after he'd started the hoax um but he was he was only actually about a mile away from Castleton. So. Oh, okay. So <laughs> the guy got it right. wasn't exactly wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was about a mile out. He lived on an estate just about a mile away. Oh, wow. Okay. But 
his neighbours were also spoken to when they did the investigation in the north. Um, and they spoke to all of his neighbours, but they didn't speak to him or his brother. Huh. And that, I mean, there's the, um, I love the guy who says, uh, he brings up Sutcliffe. He had, he had interviewed, like Sutcliffe is, 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 is like, is interviewed nine times, right? He's brought in nine times. And, and one constable yeah. says, well, what's the accent? And he said, well, it's not, it's not Geordie or whatever. He says, it's Yorkshire. And the guy says, and he starts Ethan and Jethan, which is my favorite thing. I'm going to start saying that all the time now. <laughs> Ethan and Jethan. And, um, and they would have none of it, right? Um, um, I, I love this, this, this part, you know, where they, where the, you know, they got, they got the egghead there going on about how it's a, it's a psychopathic monster, <laughs> right? And, and yet he can pass him off as just a normal man and, and the women are just not, not buying it. I, I got to read something to you. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. No, I was yeah. just going to say, he then turned around just after saying that and said that, um, they couldn't define a psychopath at the same time. I was like, right. Okay. <laughs> so, so I, I, um, in, in the, in the time where you and I were working on our technical dif difficulties, one of the things I, one of the things I did was went back. I was curious, when did, when did the Yorkshire Ripper enter the North American and more specifically Canadian and more specifically Quebec consciousness? And it's really interesting. Um, it's not till 1978, and it first appears in a French newspaper um, in February of 78 called uh, Le Devoir, um, which is a, a slightly right of center uh, paper from Quebec. It doesn't enter the rest of the newspapers, Yorkshire Ripper, until the following year in 79. That's when the English Quebec papers and um, the other French papers pick up on it. But what's interesting is, and I, I need to read this because I, I need to hear your reaction to it. It's a very short notice in uh, Le Devoir, and it says, um, it says this, London, a woman may be, a woman may be the mysterious assassin who, like Jack the Ripper, killed and maimed seven people, including six prostitutes, in 27 months in Yorkshire. Local newspapers reported on Thursday that psychiatrists asked to paint a psychological portrait of the killer believe he may be female. <laughs> the, the experts formulate two hypotheses on the subject. Either it is a homosexual struck by a psychopathy which causes it to attack the prostitutes because of their relationship with men, or it is a heterosexual woman, but suffering from internment, schizophrenic insanity that results in outbursts of unleashed violence. Either way, whether the murderer is a man or a woman, psychiatrists judge that we are dealing with an individual of above average intelligence outside of their times of crisis. That's it. That's the story. Okay. <laughs> but again, right? It's the other. And and I tried to track down if there was any other mention of such a theory and I couldn't I mean I mean I had 3 hours to do it, but I couldn't find anything. But again, it's 
couldn't be a man who looked just like any other man. It had to be, you know, either a monster or a homosexual or a woman. It's definitely a sign of the times, but we all have that. It's a boogeyman thing. Yeah. And I think that was in part of how the media kept everyone in control about it because in the documentary, it shows that women were, you know, trying to rise up and you have that take back the night uh, campaign, which was all good and fair, but even in the documentary, it shows, oh, have you seen any women out alone at night? And men going, oh, yeah, look at them, a bit silly, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it was in part a form of control. It's it's making him the monster. Even the moniker, the Ripper, obviously has giant connotations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, I love in that section where they're talking about reclaim the night, take back the night... So they, they photograph like a piece of graffiti that says men are the enemy. It's like you, you couldn't get you, you you couldn't have it more bluntly stated than right. And, and, and again, like a really interesting time, right? By now we're in uh, 79, 80, um, punk, new wave, uh, gender mixing, women and men wanting to go out and club and, and it's painted as sort of like, well, a woman can only go out in the company of a man, but but men can go out and, and, and do whatever they want. And the one woman says, you know, when, when, when the pubs closed and she wanted to go home, she had all these offers of male men escorting her home, which she didn't want to be. And, you know, it was okay for men to go out and club, but, but women, they, they couldn't do it and, uh, and could only walk, well, you know, men men giving this idea like like women needed to be protected by other men, which is must be just so confounding, and uh, I, I can't imagine. You've got to look out for any man because it could be the Ripper, but at the same time, you have to rely on them. Right. Which doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and. Um, I can't remember who it was in the documentary that turned around and said it was like men was holding it over them. Yeah. And it it is something that happens in, you know, relationships where a man has to feel powerful sometimes. And that's what it was like, but on a scale, just mass hysteria type. It was every single woman in the North having to worry. Right. It was that full control. Because if you didn't, you were to blame if you were to get attacked. You, you know, there are no women there. There at the time, you know, women women are on the force, and this it, like it's everywhere in the sense. Of, well, they can be meter maids, right? They can they can be in the non sworn enforcement wing of the police, but we're not going to have women as investigators. We're not going to have women as leads uh, reporting this. So where where is the woman's voice? In 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 any in, in any of this, and to this day, that is still a prejudice. Mm -hmm. It's still a big issue. That it was something that was actually mentioned in the uh, inquest thereafter about the choice of um, Oldfield as the lead on this case, just because he was a you know someone quite senior and he had had experience didn't exactly mean he should have taken the job because he was very much of the old style that, you know, 
well, prostitutes deserve to be arrested and they're the cause of the issue. So it was a woman at the core of the issue. It wasn't the fact that there was a man going around killing people. It was the woman's fault for doing whatever job she chose to do. And they even found out that, you know, not all the victims were prostitutes, just as the police had claimed. That was an assumption. Right. Right. And yeah, and the, yeah, the lead investigator there, or Oldfield, I mean, what a fossil. I mean, the guy looks like he, he he stepped right out of like a Rudyard Kipling novel or something. I mean, just you know, put a pith helmet on him. Or, I mean, just ridiculous. And um, yeah, and there's this language about, you know, you know, it's not. Finally, we have an innocent woman woman after, um, you know, oh. after a series of prostitutes, and you're just left scratching your head. And I, I was talking to somebody about this. It's not even. It's not even like a feminist issue. It's just, it's just a, it's a humanity issue. I mean, you're not listening mm-hmm. to fifty percent of the voices in in these matters. The perfect campaign is the perfect music. That's why premium beat tracks are produced by award-winning musicians at world-class studios. Plus, our license gives you tracks for a lifetime. Pay once and never again. Save twenty-five percent on your next track at premiumbeat.com/royalty-free/podcast. What am I, what am I missing? What, 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 what else, um, from a UK perspective? I mean, we do this all the time, right? People think John lives in the States. He knows everything about, you know, the Zodiac and Ted Bundy, and I know nothing about them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we assume Lady Justice and Chantel knows everything about um, the Ripper, the Yorkshire Ripper. Well, he was captured 10 years before I was born. <laughs> so, okay, right. <laughs> it, it's one of those things where I never had to live through it. And it's one of those cases, though, when you start getting into true crime, especially UK true crime. So those cases that you have to look at because he's, you know, he's our big bad boogeyman. Um, and we know who he is. Oh, and... He was constantly in and out of the press, you know, as I grew up and up to obviously this year where he died because of um, issues with COVID. He's a very strange one. He was always looking for attention. And I don't know that he had a problem with prostitutes. I really don't think that sex workers were his ideal victimology. I think any woman was. And I think that we had this narrative told to us so much. Um, and I think it, it definitely was the case. It was a parallel missed in the Ipswich sex workers, um, Steve Wright's murders um, back in the early 2000s in the fact that we still demonize sex work and we, we see them as winning victims. And that's something that, the police do try to change. They have tried to change since then. But there's so much more work to be done and there has to be work done by the media because we still blame a lot of victims for the fact that they fall into circumstances. You were talking about the fact that just because there's an economic situation doesn't mean that that's what you want to do. It's just something you do to survive. <clears throat> With the Sutcliffe case, I think we... We tend to focus more on, oh, well, you know, 
they were sex workers and they used that language in the documentary where they were saying oh you know the public are going to start to have sympathy for these women and I don't think we still have all the sympathy for these women because of the narrative we're told and we're still told today because as I grew up it was he was a prostitute killer when he wasn't a prostitute killer he was a woman killer and we're and we're seeing a lot. I mean, the it reminds me today the economic situation for some feels very familiar um, in in that way um, that um, people are desperate over the past year and and I hear all kinds of stories of people making ends meet by all kinds of means, um, some very very creative, um, some some quite tragic and. Um, uh, you know, making difficult difficult choices under difficult uh, circumstances, which which feels very reminiscent. Uh, one of the things I've done uh, since March is documented all the women who are have been disappearing off the streets of uh, of um, of Quebec, specifically uh, young women, which uh, is is not um, an unheard of thing. But it certainly seems to be an accelerated process right now. Um, Quebec has a long history of problems with uh, sexual violence against young women, uh, child prostitution, incest, uh, not unlike many places. So when you look at, you know, the Yorkshire Epic case, do you think Suckler could have got away with what he did if he was in Quebec at the same time? Absolutely. I, I, th I think someone did get away with something very similar in Quebec. I, I think yeah. several did. I think several did. I mean, I, I, I tend to talk about one offender in particular. I, I think there's about, I don't think there's some kind of wave of it, but I, particularly three or four who did because, because of the, the refuser, refusal to acknowledge that it's someone just like like you, I mean, even mm -hmm. you, you know, even when the father of Sutcliffe, that language about what well, he's the last person you would have suspected, it's like no, he's the first, you know, because he's just like Grandpa who who molested his children or you know sexually molested his daughter. This goes, this is rampant in Quebec. It always it's like the worst kept secret, and nobody, oh, well, you know, that's just that's just Uncle Claude being uncle claude no N no not not at all um so yes i i do uh, that's why i find it so so amazing that it um you know it's not a it's not a parallel situation but uh there's so much for me that is similar between you know an offender with a car who's kind of roaming the countryside um sherbrooke in the se late 70s feels very much like leeds uh, Yorkshire in the late 70s, the use of a signature weapon, um, many other implements, but the signature weapon of a hammer or a mallet, uh, but also improvised weapons, screwdrivers and, and such. Um, and, and just the approach, uh, when the one survivor mentions, you, you know, he sort of the disarming approach of, hey, hey, oh, you, you know, and, and running up and, and and feigning familiarity is is just terrifying.
It's another thing that I wanted to say was about um, how the police were so willing to discount living survivors. Hugh Tyrone said, no, he had a Yorkshire accent. No, he was like this. He was like this. But to fit the narrative that had been, you know, told to the entire nation, it was all discounted. Right. It's 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 like the most awesome case of confirmation bias, you know, the, the most epic example of confirmation bias you could ever hear. Just tossing anything that didn't go with your your, you know, your prime theory. It's one of those things as well, when I was thinking about it, you know, the the voice tape, he would have had to travel around about 100, 140 miles um, to commit these right. murders, which right. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. you know. Yeah. It, we're a small country, but um, that's quite a distance to go. Right, and, uh, like unmotivated. It's like I'm going to drive 140 miles today to commit a murder because I don't, I, you know, I, I don't want to be suspected. I mean, it's ridiculous. And nobody would have noticed him missing. And the five pound note, it was obviously tracked to where Sutcliffe worked. But when they tracked it, it went down to three banks and obviously down to the employers because they were new five pound notes. None of them had made their way up to Sunderland. Right. I mean, when that yeah. theory came in, it made no sense to me about why yet something else, you know, one of their first big leads, when it didn't fit this new narrative about why that was thrown away, because it was one of the biggest things that they had. So it wasn't just the victims they discounted, it was actual evidence, hard evidence that they had. Right. Along with the, the, the boot imprint, which which I didn't know, there was not only a boot imprint in the mud. There was actually one on on, on a victim's body. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very nice for you to have joined me today, uh, Boxing Day, Chantal from Lady Justice on Who Killed Teresa, and thank you so much for having a um, unfortunately brief but uh, meaningful conversation about the um, the Yorkshire Ripper case. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. I think I think uh, Lady Justice is hosted on Podbean, but uh, just just uh, Google Lady Justice podcast Chantel, and you should be able to find it um, if you want to listen and con- do continued conversation. That's it. That is our conversation with uh, Chantal from Lady Justice and the Yorkshire Ripper case, tale of Peter Sutcliffe. Um, uh, uh, some some final notes on that. I discussed a, a bit about three or four ser- serial killers. A bit a bit of 
in Quebec, a bit of clarification on that. Um, when you talk about Quebec serial killers, the names that will typically come up are Wayne Bowden, uh, Serge Archambault, um, Agostino Fieri uh, comes comes up. They come up the most, and that's not who I'm referring to, although I've certainly um, covered them. William Fife as well, of course. Um, uh, I've done two podcasts on Fife, so we... Uh, you shouldn't drop him. Um, and then there's a couple of maybes. The Robert LeBlanc, who uh, murdered uh, Chantal Brochou. Um, uh, Cube, the Cube. Uh, uh, Richard Bouillon, um, uh, suspected of murder. Um, and uh, LeBlanc, possibly uh, responsible for other murders. Uh, but those are not... <laughs> after, after cataloging... A litany of murderers in Quebec. There's more. Um, actually, I tend to focus on three others. Come to think of it, Quebec has <laughs> quite a um, quite a <laughs> rogues gallery of uh, um, serial sexual offenders. Uh, I, I I'm as I said focused on a guy named Luke Gregoire. Um, um, Guy Croteau and Claude LaRouche was the third one, all of whom uh, are or were incarcerated for only one murder, but it is, uh, it, it, they are suspected of having committed several murders. And, and I, I, I have my little book in front of me. I, I know who I think they murdered. I, I would... I would tag uh, Luke Gregoire for um, at, at at least I'm on record as seven murders in the book. Um, uh, wish you were here, um, but I would say some some others that I've not covered. Claude Larouche, I would tag for um, six murders. Guy Croteau, eight murders in Quebec. Um, and um, it remains to be seen where I'm going to go with that information. I haven't really decided. That might become the focus of what gets discussed in the new year uh, with season five of Who Killed Teresa? Wow. Um, didn't think we'd make it that far. Uh, it, it, that may, that may not. That uh, uh, I, I don't know. I don't. You know, is there a book in that? I don't think people are much interested in another book on Quebec serial killers. Who knows? Uh, uh, I'm interested in it, but uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, if you like the podcast, um, please continue to listen to us. We're, our platform is uh, uh, Spreaker, but you can find us on uh, Spotify, on iTunes, and Stitcher, among other podcasts platforms follow us on social media uh both Chantel and i can be found on uh certainly uh both twitter and uh facebook we have facebook pages and twitter accounts i can't remember just just look for Teresa lore or uh lady justice um and my my personal uh twitter handle is justice guy j-o-s-t-u-s-g-u-y at justice guy i 
That's in, I never thought of Lady Justice and Justice Guy. I never thought of that. Wow, that's kind of neat. Anyway, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, there's a website, TeresaLore.com. Um, check that out for past podcasts, uh, yeah, other information about Quebec murders, unsolved cases, and um, for a link to buy the book, Wish You Were Here is also there. If, um, if you're so inclined and you're having difficulty finding it, there's a link where uh, it'll take you to um, my uh, big cartel account. You can order a copy. I'll ship it anywhere in the world. And I'll, I'll, you can't have Patricia's signature, but I will sign it for you. Uh, uh, I'll sign it however you like. Just tell me how you want me to sign it and I'll do it. Uh, no problem there. All right. Uh, happy New Year, everybody. This has been Who Killed Teresa. I'm your host, John Allure. Have yourselves a great, great day.
did you have a good Boxing Day yesterday? So exciting. <laughs> <laughs> How's that jigsaw coming along? Uh, almost done. <laughs> oh, don't, I've been doing them with my little ones today, so. <laughs> it's been slow. Mr. Morton was, Mr. Morton is the subject of the sentence, and what the predicate says he does. Mr. Morton knew just one girl. Gym sessions and sweaty summer activities are back, which means more funky smells in your clothes because sweat leaves behind bacteria that causes those hard-to-remove odors. Clorox Fabric Sanitizer products are ready to zap the stink out of fabrics in your home by getting rid of 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria. Eliminate odors in every load or sanitize fabrics between washes with one of our Fabric Sanitizer products. Search Fabric Sanitizer at Clorox.com to learn more. When it counts, trust Clorox. Use as directed. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.